You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Is your life a mess? If it is, congratulations. You've come to the right place. Stick around and you'll find out why. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I have found that one of the most powerful and enjoyable ways to grow, expand, and enrich our lives is to read great books. And our sponsor, Audible, has made that easy and fun for you by offering you an audiobook of your choice absolutely free that you can download at their website, www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. You get to choose the book that you want from more than 180,000 titles, and you get access for a month to all of Audible services absolutely free. When you get something of value from this podcast, go to iTunes, look for the title, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, leave a brief review and a rating for the show, a great way to pay this forward and to create more visibility and share this with more people. Keep your comments coming about what you're enjoying and also what you'd like to see in the show going forward. Send your comments to loseclub at gmail.com. That's L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Today's guest is a woman who turned her biggest mess into her biggest message that is empowering her life and the lives of others. She will show you how to do the same thing. She's a three-times best-selling author and an addiction recovery coach. She has written four books and is also an award-winning, contributing author in world-renowned thought leader Jack Canfield's book, The Soul of Success. This dynamic woman's books, workshops, and coaching inspire children to live lives of contribution and help people transform their destructive behaviors into springboards for spiritual growth. Get ready for some serious empowerment from Lori Lush. Lori, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. A great pleasure. Where were you born, Lori? I was born in Toronto, Canada, and I grew up in the beautiful city of Vancouver. Wow, where in Toronto? Because as you know, I live in Toronto right now. Oh, okay. Well, the, the hospital was in Vaughan. My actual birth certificate says Vaughan, Ontario, but most people don't know where that is. And as you know, that's uh, now part of Toronto, I believe. Mm-hmm. And did you live in Toronto for a long time? 
Um, no, I think we moved away when I was three weeks old the first time. We moved to New York City, over to Calgary, back to Toronto. And then by the time I started grade one, we were back in my parents' hometown of Vancouver. And um, and that's where we stayed. Wow. That's a lot of moving around for, <laughs> for an infant. Who would you say influenced you the most when you were a child? I would say my mom kind of a pat answer but actually she really was a just kind of a shining quiet light and um, she lived a life of really that golden rule of you know do unto others be kind don't gossip don't judge you know really be kind of a positive thought leader and that's that's really influenced my life in a in a profound way wonderful did you have a childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up um, yes, and it's a very strange one. I actually wanted to be an African American. <laughs> so, well, so go figure. Well, you know, was, go ahead. That's kind of an impossible dream. But as a child, that was like what I wanted to be when I grew up. So, you know, my mom got me a little African American Barbie doll. And that was kind of the end of that. <laughs> well, you say it's strange. And yet, you know, it's a phenomenon. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but there's a book, not a book, a film made by uh, a brilliant and eccentric filmmaker named James Toback. And it's called Black and White. And it's about white kids who want to be black. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. And, and it is one powerful movie. See if you can find it. Uh yeah, it's really... I will. I've never heard of anybody. That's just, I did not know that existed. I thought I was a very strange little kid, but I'm fascinated. I will definitely look up that movie. Yeah, James Toback, he, uh, he's quite a, quite a guy. Uh, he actually did a film with uh, Mike Tyson, which, which was excellent. An excellent film oh, yeah. where, where you got to see Tyson's vulnerability, of all things. It was really incredible to see um that's interesting why do you think you wanted to be an african-american i'm not really sure looking back like as a little peanut mind um i really don't know i have no answer for that i think that i mean yeah i don't know i'd be making something up if i pretended to know what my little peanut brain was thinking did you have a career dream that may have been associated with that? Like maybe you wanted to be Aretha Franklin. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> may she, may she well, rest in peace. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I always thought if I had a an amazing voice, I would have loved to have been a singer. And I, in grade seven, I was the lead of our, our little grade seven musical. And that was my, my sort of one and only songstress moment and you know at it, when you're seven you don't really have to have a great voice you just have to get out there and sort of belt it and I, I guess I could carry a tune um so perhaps there was some of that um I you know I love dancing I love movement so maybe it's just that whole fantasy of yeah powerful um dancers and singers and yeah who knows but yeah that that would have been that would have been a, a childhood mm. dream on more of a vocational level mm. well uh, as the listeners will find out, life kind of helped you to make the choices that you did to become who you are today. And 
Along that journey, you fought a pretty big demon. Can you talk what was the big demon that you battled and conquered? Yeah, I did. Um, You know, probably insecurity, if I really got to the root of it, was my big demon. But how that manifested was um, first alcohol, drugs, you know, anything sort of 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, to get myself out of that insecurity and um, just a sense of anxiety. And then that led to really what was my biggest lifelong battle, which was bulimia. So when the sort of drugs and alcohol stopped working, you know, I was crashing cars and blowing up relationships and all the things that come along with that level of abuse, um, you know, being hung over, of course, uh, all the time, just stopped being fun. And I turned to food and that was in sort of college. And I thought this, I just need out of the anxiety that was, you know, just 24 seven in my brain. And I'd heard about, you know, bulimia, I'd heard it was a way to kind of calm the anxiety and I tried it and it's like, wow, it worked until it didn't. So that became my, you know, really, it was a, about a, well, it was the 18 year battle from the time I went to a treatment center to the time I became abstinent. And it was before that, it was probably about three or four years of, you know, very active in that eating disorder before I eventually went to a five month treatment center. Wow, you just said something that uh, I never knew, that bulimia can be a way of dealing with anxiety. Oh, absolutely. Like, I I believe that all addictions are rooted in anxiety and stress and an inability to cope with, you know, kind of normal emotions, but they become, you know, in certain people are exacerbated. And if you, you know, weren't maybe raised in an environment where you could share feelings and process emotions and you know, you're kind of left with a whole lot of stuff going on upstairs and an inability to manage it. And that's why we go to addictions. I mean, that's, you know, a fairly common um, reason, you know, why people drink. Well, they've got this committee in their head that they just want to shut up. And so go and drink. And or, you know, if you're if you do have social insecurities, that that's a, that's a form of anxiety. So go use, you know, drugs or alcohol or you know, in, in my case, later on in life, there was just so much, um, you know, I don't need to get into the laundry list of what caused the anxiety, but there was just a lot of stress and anxiety and, um, and being able to kind of numb out. Um, the only time that my brain was kind of shut off was when I was active in my addiction. So it was either the, you know, addictions are often very ritualistic, and whether it's a shopping addiction, whether it's a sex addiction, you know, alcohol, whatever it is, you've got the the, the buildup of anxiety. And then the moment you start to plan your use, your use, whatever that may be, the the anxiety kind of reduces a little bit. So whether it's, say, say a, a sex addiction, as an example, well, your anxiety, 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 then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'm going to start my ritual of preparing to go out and get myself ready and go out to the club and find the person and that all, you know, it does reduce it. And same with food. Okay. As soon as I decide to give in to this thing, it's like the moment I go out to get my, you know, my binge food or whatever it is I'm I'm going to get, that's when the anxiety starts to reduce, but it's really in its least amount when you're actually in it. And then even with bulimia, the purge, it's really common that most bulimics will say that you're still, you're in a, like a robotic state almost in the, 
the using of the food, but then on the purge, that's really when the peace comes and it's like, ah, finally a relief. And so it's like a relief of this acute anxiety. um, And it's quite effective. Like it's a very effective tool until it's not, until it takes over, until it becomes, you know, life threatening, life altering, et cetera. And then that's the point where it's like, okay, this, this brilliant hack for my anxiety doesn't work anymore and we've got to make changes. Wow. I knew the mechanics of it, but I never, never knew that the purge, as you said, that that, which is um, probably not a pleasant experience, that it actually would bring peace. Yeah, it, and it's and it does. And, you know, it's funny to talk about these crazy details like purging. However, it's just an interesting thing that most people that well people that aren't bulimic don't understand they they equate you know when or when do we purge oh it's when we've got the flu we're feeling terrible we're hung over and you feel awful there's none of that sort of sense of really bad feeling involved and the food hasn't even digested so it's not like the grossness that you think of that goes along with a regular you know throwing up session it's not like that so it's just it's 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 just a relief. It's a release. It's a relief. And yes, it's it's very unusual unless you've experienced it. It's I mean, people that are blue is my clients. I mean, they're just totally. Oh, yeah, we completely get it. It's like, um, but yes, it's hard. It's a hard thing to describe, but it very much um, does. It serves its purpose um, until it doesn't. What about uh, women, young women, even men who are bulimic because of their terrible body image was that part of your problem um your challenge yeah that's that's sometimes part of it but really you know statistically like a hundred percent of the time somebody becomes bulimic they've always started with some kind of restriction so yes it could have started you know whatever age where okay i'm gonna I'm going to restrict calories because I don't, you know, I have a bad body image, which apparently like 85% of girls by the time they're in grade two nowadays have a poor body image. So there's some kind of restriction involved. Um, and then what happens is millennia of conditioning of, you know, we're, our bodies go into starvation mode. And, you know, what is that is that is the precursor for a, a binge. Like, it's like our bodies are like, I, I need calories. I need calories. I need calories. And as Dave Asprey of Bulletproof says, he says, um, uh, biology will trump willpower every single time. And I, and I totally get that. It's like we can say, oh, we're not going to binge and we're not going to binge. However, if we've starved our bodies, our, our, our you know, conditioning will trump our willpower. So our biology will. So part of it can be body image. Part of it can be you're literally starving um, nutritionally. And, and a lot of people that are in a ditch, left and right when I start asking them about their like what is your nutrition I mean it's kind of the joke you go to an AA meeting and people are all in the back smoking cigarettes and eating candy because generally people that are in addictions aren't feeding themselves well and so there's the it's kind of the one-two punch you might have a little bit of body image issues but you also have your biology saying eat 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 like you're starving yourself of nutrition and so those combined is just the perfect storm for, you know, anything that is a restrictive behavior to turn into a bulimic behavior. Wow. This is quite uh, eye-opening. Um, you mentioned Dave Asprey. Do you use Bulletproof Coffee? 
I do. Yes. Dave, Dave is a friend. I know him through uh, Joe Polish's Genius Network and uh, he's introduced uh, Bulletproof to us. Gosh, it's been, I think it's been about five years now. It seemed, or maybe, yeah, four or five years and have been drinking it ever since. And um, which was a, a very hard thing for somebody, you know, with an, a background in eating disorders, because we grew up in the, you know, I grew up in the 70s, I was, I was born in 68. And so the 70s was all about like, no fat, you know, everything was low this, low that, you know, fake foods, Molly McButter, um, NutraSweet, Cool Whip. I mean, it wasn't the real food. And so then to switch that thinking over to know we actually need the fats. The reason why we can, you know, you overeat is because you're eating a bunch of non-real food and your body's still needing what it needs. So you'll just keep eating. Whereas now I switch over and I do a, a you know, a higher fat diet. And my body's like, ah, oh, it can relax. It's like, okay, I'm not going to be starved anymore. I have the nutrition I need. I have the, you know, the healthy calories. And so, yeah, I love, I love Bulletproof. I start every morning with a half calf, um, brain octane, grass organic butter blended. And uh, it's just, it's just such a good way to feed the brain and feed the body. I was just at a, um, a marketing event by, um, Mike Koenigs and one of the oh, yeah. uh, you know, one of the speakers was uh, was Dave Asprey. He was uh, he's fascinating. So you are a member of the Genius Network. Yeah, I'm not a member, but I go to the annual events. I just do the yeah once a year. I think I've been to the last, four out of the last five events, and so I, I I'm part of that. I really enjoy it. I know Mike as well, and yeah, it's a it's a great gang of people. Oh, I I listen to their podcast, and I think Joe Polish is a gift to uh, to the planet. Yeah, he is. He yeah. really is. I mean, you know, and um, his work on addiction is is quite uh, quite inspiring as well. Um, so, I, from listening to you, I guess you have the same view of addiction that Gabor Mate does. That. The question shouldn't be why the addiction, because addiction is actually a solution to pain. So the question should be why the pain. Right. Exactly. And that's how, uh, is that a premise in your work? It is. Yeah. We get down to what, what, why are we choosing this sort of maladjusted behavior? What are we trying to anesthetize really? And that's pain. We want to take a painkiller. And so, you know, in my coaching, I, we don't get into a whole lot of, you know, psychotherapy, childhood trauma, this and that we touch on it, of course, it's something to, to notice. Um, but I kind of take it in a different vein of, um, let's not go back to the story, because we can relive the story over and over and over and the pain over and over and over. And it's, it doesn't become helpful. So I think it's good to touch on it. And then realize, you know, if you had a painful event happen, say, say when you're eight years old, you pick an event, it was painful. That happened one time in your life. And what people often do is they go back and they perpetuate, we perpetuate the pain over and over and over by our story around it. And so I really encourage clients to touch on it, acknowledge it, move through it, and then release it. And, you know, even even to the case of, you know, eating disorder, there's there's often sexual trauma, early sexual, you know, early childhood sexual trauma. And, and when clients can really re realize that they're re-traumatizing themselves every time they revisit it, 
that's that's when they're never going to get well or never going to get the freedom. I shouldn't say never going to get it, get well, but the freedom from it. So yes, we address the pain and then we you know do our best to really move through it and move past it. I love what you're saying because it's my feeling that everything is a story. So even if we revisit the event, we can't really do that. We can only visit a a story that we've created around the event. Right. I mean, I love yes. when Dan Sullivan says that not only is the future a story, but the past is a story. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's a very powerful insight. And if people really get that, I mean, then they can break free of a lot of stuff that they hold on to. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yes, an epiphany. Yeah. It's definitely an, an epiphany state. It's like, oh, wow. And once once we get it, there really is no going back. There's no need for it. So do you have clarity about any particularly strong reason that that specific demon found you? Ah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think there's two ways to look at it from like a spiritual approach. I would say that it didn't find me, but I chose it because I, I really think that, you know, as we kind of come down as these soul beings in this earthly experience, we have lessons to learn and we have experiences to have. And and I believe most addiction or all addiction is is to further us along this spiritual path. So you know, we can choose a, a lot of different things to, you know, people can choose, say, entrepreneurship to because that's a very spiritual path as well. You go through a lot of traumas and hardships and soul searching and, you know, a lot of things in that journey, your journey of acting. I'm sure that's a very much a spiritual practice as well. And, and I think addiction happens to be another one, another form of spiritual journey. So I think it was something that perhaps I chose as a spirit being as, as part of my journey. Um, and then I think on a more sort of psychological approach, if you will, I think I was kind of grew up in the perfect storm to develop an eating disorder. There was, you know, perfectionism was, you know, very much in our family, you know, body shapes that weren't the perfect were pointed out as like, oh, they were probably abused or some like there was something wrong with anybody that was a little bit bigger. Um, we were, you know, an athletic family and, you know, statistically 65% of pro athletes are eating disordered. Now, I wasn't a pro athlete, um, but that's a pretty high statistic that athleticism does often go hand in hand with eating disorders. And then we didn't really have a lot of communication. And so like, I, I don't really have a memory of sitting down and just sort of sharing feelings or thoughts or chatting and having a sort of forum for like a space to put any of these things that, you know, you grow up with as you you have traumas happen at school as little kids or kids are mean or they're bullying or whatever. And and if there's no place to put that, you can kind of, it's just, it, it accumulates, I think in your system. And like they say, the issues are in the tissues. And I think that that does happen. And so, you know, that, that was, I think the perfect storm, for an eating disorder for me. And one thing that was like, and and maybe this was, maybe this wasn't, but it's kind of a funny thing. Like I never developed like as a woman, I was always this kind of skinny chicken leg kid. And so my, my brothers, my older brother, they used to call me MB. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. My, my name's Lori Brian. My maiden name is Brian. My initials are LB. What's this MB? 
oh yeah, that's for mosquito bites. <laughs> you know, it'd be like this whole thing because I never developed. And so I just had a really bad sense of body as well. So I just, I was just not a comfortable kid in my own skin and, um, and having nowhere to put that uh, was just really the, yeah, the perfect, the perfect storm for just checking out. And so as soon as I picked up that first, you know, bottle of booze and it was like, you know, a few sips of that, then all the, the anxiety started to go away and uh, that was just, this is awesome. I can get out of my brain. I can get out of my, just the angst. And then that led to, you know, as I mentioned earlier, led to other things. And uh, eventually bulimia was my, the toughest one to overcome. But yeah, it was just kind of the perfect storm. So I think it chose me. I chose it. It just was, you know, and, uh, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really trade it. I can hear that. And I, uh, what's interesting is that you have you're very lucid about it so so you've obviously done the important work and probably if you didn't have that lucidity you wouldn't even be as comfortable talking about it yeah i'm really comfortable talking about it because it's over <laughs> i wasn't as comfortable when i was in it believe me it was very shameful very humiliating you know i it was literally 18 years of you know, five months in a treatment center, and I came home and fell flat on my face even worse with the bulimia, because I did recognize and I spent four and a half years clean and sober from alcohol and drugs. And so there was none of that going on. So basically, all everything went into the bulimia in terms of my escapism. And so that was uh, hu super humiliating. But at the same time, I did every like if I look at the checklist of how to do this, how to overcome. I mean, Matt, I was on that checklist right to the point of like phoning up the church elders and saying, well, hey, in the Bible, it says if you get anointed with oil and if you confess your sins, you'll be healed. And like, I'm not a religious person today, but I mean, I would have done anything. So I'm sitting around a bunch of like old guys, elders probably thinking I'm just a whack job <laughs> saying I can't like not binge and purge my food. But I did that, you know, I got anointed with oil, I went to prayer, you know, circles, I went and lived with people when I knew I was going to have a, you know, I sensed a rough weekend, hey, can I come stay with you? Like, I went to the lengths that that it took. And, um, and, you know, for whatever reason, just couldn't couldn't overcome. And it just took the I guess, a you know, perfect series of events back in 2013. So my, my sobriety date from out from uh, bulimia is May 9th of 2013. So I'm only, you know, five years in here. And, um, and I'm, I'm 50 this year. So it just gives you an idea of how long this went on in, in kind of informative years. I remember being in treatment and I was uh, 27, I guess. And I saw this, you know, this older lady, I mean, she was probably about 45. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you're this old and you don't have your shit together yet. Excuse my language. But I literally had that thought. And I'm like, wow, I'm that person. Like, I just, I just couldn't do it. And um, so speaking of it, you know, I did stop speaking of it, because I felt like a broken record. I, I just stopped sort of I felt like a burden sharing this burden with anybody. I'm like, I've done it all. I've had the support and it's just not better. So I'm just going to let it, you know, I'm just going to run with it and kind of give up my fight. But then in, um, yeah, in 2013, I just realized I'm like, I'm not, I'm actually going to check out, like, I can't do this forever. And um, I was at a point where I never, I never like planned a suicide. But when you start having thoughts of like, I just can't do life anymore. Um, it's pretty acute pain, um, emotional pain. And that's where I was. And 
that's when I got myself a, an addiction recovery coach and got serious. It took me six months with Cesar, who was my, my guy, and a six months for my first appointment. Starting three months in, we started to kind of wean off behaviors. They were daily, like, you know, all day, every day, if I had nothing else going on. And um, if not, they were in, you know, my spare time. And, uh, you know, yeah, it took me it took me three months of literally playing the game of weaning down, weaning down to the point where I finally got my my free my birthday, May 9th of 2013. Wow. Do you remember your darkest moment? Ah, oh, God, there were so many, um, so many dark moments. Um, there's one I talk about it in my book. It's kind of a long story, so I won't go into the whole thing, but it was a very, I was stealthed at my addiction. Like people were shocked when I went to treatment, they had no idea. And then later on in life, the people that didn't know I went to treatment, like new, you know, work colleagues or whatever, they were just shocked when I wound up, you know, coming out with my book and wow, we had no idea. But I remember one time I did get fully caught in a binge purge and, um, you know, the evidence was strewn all over the side, you know, the passenger seat of my car, you know, in terms of wrappers and things and just like embarrassing and um you know it's like the alcoholic being caught with their bottle it's just it's just that was my or the sex addict being caught with their prostitute or whatever i was just caught with the food and um and and when he came up beside my car there was the it was off on a side road and in the forest basically and he saw this the evidence of the purge on the ground and i'm like oh my god this is so embarrassing and i made up some story like right on the spot like Oh, my, my boyfriend just broke up with me and I was crying. And I just I feel so terrible. I feel so sick. And it's like, I, you know, it was just, it was just a bad deal. And, but those kind of things, you know, that, that pivotal, it, it wasn't really a pivotal moment. It was just one of the many dark moments, but um, that was, I'd never been caught before. So that was kind of yikes. That was not fun. You said you were caught. Was it by the police? Well, yeah, this police officer came up. I I parked in the. I couldn't go home because I had a roommate, so and I needed to purge, and I need and I was in this in this binge purge episode, and it's almost like robotic, and you're out of yourself for you know a good hour, an hour and a half. I couldn't go home, and so I just pulled my truck into the side road in the forest up where I live in West Van, and and was just there having my little time and um and of course leaned over and purged it out and it was a lot and um and so then this cop came with his flashlight and it was like oh my god there's somebody coming it was just one of those horrific like yikes you know i basically just about threw up on the officer's boots as he stepped up into the driver's side of the car it's like oh man wow. <laughs> this is not how i want to live it's, um it's great yeah. that, it's great that you can laugh about it today now you said that you were starting to get suicidal thoughts and then you made a decision, no, I'm going to put myself on a path to recovery. But was there some pivotal event that triggered that? Because you could have been triggered to follow through and you wouldn't be here today. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm suicidal by nature. So I'm a, I'm a, I don't, I don't even like to use the word survivor. I'm a thriver. And so to check out like that just isn't in my nature. I'm, I'm a like pretty happy person. I almost thought I woke, I came out smiling and I kept smiling and I've, I have a generally positive outlook. So, so to follow through on something like that, I don't think is in my DNA, if you will, but to live with those thoughts was, was like torment. And so I knew that I couldn't live with, this level of thinking anymore 
and I couldn't live with this level of behaviors. And, you know, you know that we've all got dreams and goals and aspirations that that are important to us to fulfill on. And when you're caught in an addiction, I mean, you are not fulfilling on some of that stuff. Like I, I don't know how I was able to become an award winning realtor in Vancouver in full blown bulimia, because that takes chutzpah, takes drive and, and follow through. And it takes, you know, it takes a lot to, to be at that top level. Um, but that to me was easy. It was almost like the adrenaline and the the deals and the money and the like, it almost fed my addiction. But when I really looked at what was truly important to me, I knew I wanted to write books, I knew I wanted to help other people, I knew I wanted to live, you know, uh, you know, kind of a more, I don't know, a more substantial life, I guess, would be a good word than just living for the deal. And I know that that stuff takes a lot of pain, as you know, like acting or, you know, doing roles or writing books or writing screenplays or, you know, those things take sitting down, they take discipline, they take a lot of grit. And when you're in an addiction, as soon as the grit gets too gritty, we like, boom, we're over here and we're picking up the bottle or we're picking up the food or we're picking up whatever because life gets too hard. And so I thought, geez, if I really want to fulfill on any of those things, I can't, it's, it's mutually exclusive, like bulimia and my goals and dreams, they just don't, they just don't go together. So I think that was it. I just got sick of living in my story of I'm, I'm never going to fulfill on this stuff. It's like, well, yeah, actually, you're not if you keep this up. So what do you want to do? You know, in Landmark, there's a thing that says vanilla chocolate shoes. Like it really doesn't matter if you have vanilla or if you have chocolate ice cream, just pick one and go there. And so I think it just came to a point where I just had to put on the big girl panties and stop sort of playing in the sandbox like a child, which is really what I, I think I was doing. Is like, eh, I don't want to feel this stuff. I don't want to do this stuff. So I'm just going to go do this thing. It's like, okay, that, that, I, I'm, I'm kind of done with that. Hmm. What were the main patterns of thinking that you had to give up in order to win and to succeed at this battle? Okay, well, yeah, that was a that I was this I was a statistic. So statistically, the number one reason why bulimics don't want to stop their bulimia is they're afraid of weight gain. So I'd spent 20 plus years being bulimic and having no control over my intake. Like once I started eating, it was just this robotic would go on. I knew how much food I'd consumed. And I knew that if I continued on that, but I wasn't purging, I would weigh 200 plus pounds. That was my story. And that was what I was afraid. That was my thinking. So what I had to what I had to realize is that is a total story. I've never been overweight. I'm kind of naturally um, more on the athletic or smaller scale. And so that story of yes, I have been out of control with food before. However, when you know you're getting rid of it, that's one thing. But if you're just going to be irresponsible with food and you're keeping it in, the likelihood of keeping on doing that um, is is slim. So I really had to let go of that. And I had to trust that my body will regulate itself, my, my appetite, like when you're when you spend that long kind of screwing up your insides, your your ability to know when you're full, it, you don't have that ability anymore. So so at the start, you just kind of do overeat a bit and you have to look at the food. And I had to ask people like, OK, is this a normal amount to eat? Like, OK, when I ordered a restaurant, like, is that that seems like a lot or is that a little? And I really had to get advice um, on how to regulate. So so I had to let go of of 
that thinking that it's going to be totally out of control and I'm going to, you know, end up like the first nursery rhyme my dad ever taught us was fatty, fatty, two by four, couldn't get through the kitchen door. I mean, that was the kind of thing that I grew up with or saying, you know, yeah, just, it was a lot of food and weight, um, you know, focused and I had to let go of that and trust. Hmm. With that, that's powerful. Were there any other particular mindsets that you had to get rid of? Hmm. Okay. Um, Doesn't it? They don't have I to would, be. I just, you know, wondering. Yeah, I would say, you know, really, I had a sense of being unsafe in the world. Um, so I had to trust that when I got rid of my eating disorder and started living out in the world again in a more authentic, vulnerable way, that I was going to be okay. Mm. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. Big, that's a big one for anybody, whether you're an addict or not. Mm. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for asking that question in a more deep kind of you know, digging through, because, yeah, that would be more even the nut of it. Wow. Now, I know that you had mentors, of course. Was there one person who helped you the most? Uh, yeah, I would say uh, my coach, Cesar, who I finally, you know, in 2012, enlisted his help. And I only had him for six months. And um, and he actually retired. And, but that was just all I needed. And he really helped me with tools and and, um, yeah, he, he was, he was my guy. And then my husband, you know, around that time, uh, Ken knew that this was something I'd had in my past and that I kind of, you know, from time to time quote struggled with, but he had no idea, um, that it was the severity that it was. And so when I, you know, eventually my coach, he kept sharing like, so are you ready to tell Ken? Are you ready to tell, tell Ken? And I really wasn't, it was a piece of me that I didn't trust with him yet and um, but then I realized, you know, in order to get clean from anything, you can't do it alone. And so Ken was just a really great uh, supporter during those and still is, you know, during that during that tough, tough time. So you were married, but he didn't know. No, he had no idea. Wow. Wow. That was, I mean, that's incredibly stressful for you, too, because you've got to d- devote energy to hiding Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. And I also met my husband, you know, in the, I was definitely in bulimia and um, he, you know, has his own set of, you know, I think we attract people that are fairly similar to us. And I would say he has a tendency toward overworking. And so it actually worked out quite well. We were, you know, he was off working is 12, 16 hour days. And I'm off, you know, I lived in Phoenix at the, you know, I, I, in Vancouver, I was a um, real estate, not a, a single family home, but I sold real estate developments. And so I was really busy as well. But then he brought me down to Phoenix. And I found myself, shoot, I, I didn't have a green card, I was volunteering, I was, you know, developing mobile phone apps, I was writing kids books, I was doing things, but I didn't have that you know, go to a job and, you know, have that consistency. So it was actually the perfect storm for two kind of I kind of joke and I don't want to label my husband an addict, but I just for the for the sake of it's just easier to share. It's like we had two addicts and we were both off doing our thing and they actually complimented each other because I could be off. Awesome. He's not home. Good. I can be doing my stuff. 
And great, she's not worried about me, you know, working so hard and she doesn't seem to need me much. So this is actually great. So it, it worked out. And then when I got clean, um, you know, we had to do some major shifting and that, you know, as they always say, like when the day, when one, when one partner stops, uh, changes the dance, the other partner either changes their dance as well, or they can't be in partnership anymore. It just doesn't work. So, you know, Ken has healed a lot through my healing and, you know, it's become just a much more balanced uh, relationship in general. But yeah, at the, at the time, it was a perfect little two, two little people doing our thing and um, worked quite nicely. Wow. It's, it's, it's actually a very beautiful story. Um, you mentioned your primary mentor uh, coach, Cesar. Is that C-E-S-A-R? Um, C-S-A-R, yes. Just C-S-A-R. A C E S A R. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you had it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm almost at a loss for words. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, you know, it's interesting. I wanted to comment. You mentioned uh, that his addiction was working, but you said, "Well, I don't really want to say he was an addict." And yet, my feeling has always been that everyone is an addict of some kind. That right. that there are there are addictions that are supported in society, and that are rewarded, and so they're not called addictions. But if we really look closely, you know, where some of them are not obviously destructive, some of them are maybe even enriching, but they are addictions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Beha- yeah, behaviors, totally. you know, behaviors that. If we wanted to change, we might find very, very hard to change. When did, yeah. when did you decide to actually help others struggle with their addiction recovery? Um, well, when I went to treatment in 95, I was gung, <clears throat> excuse me, gung-ho. I was going to come back and write this book. It was called Private Prisons, and uh, I was going to help people and da-da-da-da. But you can't give away what you don't have. I had no recovery and I couldn't and I didn't get recovery for another 18 years. So I knew that I knew, you know, early, early on, it's like I I remember being in treatment and watching this lady, Cynthia McClure, I believe was her name. It's been a lot of years, Cynthia McClure. And she wrote a book called The Monster Within. And uh, she came and spoke at the treatment center. And and I just thought, wow, I want to be her one day. Like, I want to go and help people. And and so, yeah, that's when it started. And then when I actually got recovery back in 2013, I knew that that this book had to be written and I had to, you know, get some kind of certification and and start coaching people. So that's that's what I did. And what kind of certification did you get? I got an addiction recovery coach certification through um, being true to you, um, which is every you know, all my research pointed that they had the best program i mean my my author coach she said oh no you've you know you're 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 a best-selling author on the topic you've got your you know 20 plus years of experience with the thing you don't need any any actual certification but i don't agree when it comes to i mean these are people this is people's lives and so i better have some kind of something that i'm not just you know my own experience so um deanne adamson runs being true to you and um, she's a great, she's a genius network member as well. And a good friend of mine and Joe's and, and yeah, she just runs an incredible program. I can't speak highly enough, um, 
of her and it and taught me a whole bunch. And uh, and then I also just continue to up level my skills. I'm just, I'm a lifelong learner. I think I read on average a book a week and have for years. And um, so, yeah, just always looking for new strategies and skills and things that I can pass along to clients. And, and yeah, it's been really, it's been really fun. And once again, that woman's name is? Deanne Adamson with Being True to You uh, Recovery Coaching. Deanne Adamson. Wonderful. What do you, what, what would you say that, what do all forms of addiction have in common? Ah, well, I think they're all survival tools um, until they aren't. Um, so that would be one thing. And they're all very isolative. So, you know, some addictions it might appear to not be isolative, whether it's, oh, you're out drinking at a bar and it's a big party or, or you're collaborating on a big work project and, you know, you've got 18 people around the boardroom and you're all a bunch of workaholics, let's say. So you think that maybe they're not isolative, but I really think at a spiritual level, like I believe that our souls want to connect with the other soul. I don't think our, I, you know, it's fun when our minds connect and we, you know, we have these collaborations and we have all that, but I still think that the essence of humans, you know, the, it sounds so esoteric, but like the oneness of us all, I think that's really true. And so my view is that the less we're in that oneness and therefore the more we're in the, you know, the other or in our addiction, I, I don't think our souls can be very satisfied, truly satisfied. And I think, yeah, addictions are basically 100% um, soul isolating. I don't think what you said was esoteric at all. And I think that right now science is beginning to back it up, especially in the area of um, quantum physics, about mm -hmm. about the one the oneness, you know. Uh, uh, we can, well, it's a whole other discussion about energy fields and Right. Uh, Etc. But uh, that's very profound. It's uh, I'm very glad that you shared that. Are there three empowering tips, just three, I'm sure there are hundreds that you know, that you could tell someone who is struggling with bulimia or struggling with any other form of really debilitating addiction? Sure, sure. Um, so first off, get help, like 100%. You can't do it alone. Uh, second would be get your nutrition on track. Like 100% of bulimia starts with some sort of restricting, like I said, um, and other addictions, I believe, as well. So if you're fighting your biology, you, you will lose. So get your nutrition on track. Um, and then the other thing is kind of, I just would say befriend your addiction. Like there's a lot of words out there like I'm going to battle my bulimia or I'm going to kill my cancer. I'm going to, you know, the war on drugs. And, and there's a lot of pretty aggressive um words around these issues and and you know that old saying what what you resist persists so i would say to befriend it and even build an inquiry around it like what purpose is this serving what purpose has it served where can i be really grateful for this um it's it's worked until it, it's not going to work anymore and then then you know you, you can meet those needs in a less maladjusted way but yeah just befriend it and it just yeah, a battle is just a bloody mess. So that would be my my three main things. There are three very very powerful things. Tell us a bit about your various coaching programs. Sure. Yeah. I um. You know. I, I work with clients all all one on one and all over the phone. So uh, they're all over North America mainly. Um. 
So it's really accessible. I have either an eight week or a six month um, coaching packages. It's usually one hour a week um, that I speak with clients. Some, you know, earlier on will need more than that. And then some as we're tapering off might have, you know, two half hour sessions a week or whatever. But we just kind of tailor that to how how, you know, what works best for clients. And then I think the difference between like what my experience with my coach, you know, 18 years ago is I went to his office, we had our hour and I went home. And that was it until the next week. Whereas what I do, because I know the nature of addiction is when you're in that moment of, of choice, and you need help, and you need it now, like, you can't wait till next Wednesday at nine o'clock. So I have a 24 seven access um, by text um, with my clients. And that's been really useful. And so I can often sort of walk them off a ledge, um, walk them, you know, back them away from a cliff and help them through a, you know, possible binge purge episode. And um, so, yeah, so that's been that those are my those are my packages. And usually clients start with with the, the eight weeks and then and then more often than not, we top it up to the to the full six months. And some go some go longer than that. The idea, though, is this isn't a lifelong. This is a we want to get you better. We want to get you with some amazing life skills. And and, you know, one of the differences between, say, psychotherapy and coaching is coaching is really about creating an amazing life. And I, and I think that once people start to create these empowering, amazing lives, even when they're still in their addictions, they start to see, they start to see the light and, and they start to use less and less. And sometimes it's about just creating this amazing thing and filling the vacuum and the void with awesome stuff. And then the bulimia and the other addiction just kind of go to the background because they, they become unnecessary. So this is the, it's like a twofold, it's, it's weaning off behaviors and it's about creating, you know, an epic life that they maybe always dreamt of living, but never felt was possible. Hmm. Laurie, is there one thing in your life that gives you the deepest sense of purpose? Oh yeah. Well, hands down when I get, you know, emails from, from clients and they're just like, I mean, so amazing when they say what a difficult time that I helped them get through or by not judging, I felt less shame or, you know, your support has changed my life or, you know, it's just, that's really, really rewarding. Um, yeah, that would be the most rewarding when I can see that while my journey was not all for nothing, um, it makes me really happy. I, I can understand that. That's wonderful. It's wonderful to be in a place to have that, to be able to give that. Now, you read a lot. What is, this is going to be tough, and would you want one favorite book? One favorite? Gosh, I wrote three. <laughs> okay, I'll, okay let you give, I'll let you give me three, but start with the one okay. that would be at the top of the list. Okay, well, this is kind of random, but I really did change my world. The life-changing magic of tidying up, which is the Japanese art of decluttering, decluttering and organizing, um, is and I because addiction is often about stress, and so or I think it's always about stress, but sometimes it's just our environmental stress, and if we can minimize our environmental stress that we're you know, well on our way to dealing with our addiction. So that was a super helpful book. So, so um, I want to slow you down because it was a very long title, and I believe it's a book that I have that was rec- recommended by uh, Tim Ferriss because I think he, it's a woman who wrote it, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Marie Kondo. 
Yep, yep. And it's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Yep, yep. Is the is the main title. So they'll find it, you know, if your your listeners will find it with just that. Um amazing book. And don't just read it, actually do it. That's with with all of this, with any book. I mean, we can consume, which is fine, but it's it then using it, which is the the game changer. Um the other one is Loving What Is by Byron Katie. Just a I use her um, theories in you know in a lot of my coaching it's just a way of getting out of emotional pain by kind of embracing it's a lot of what we spoke about embracing story changing story you know we have a lot of story around what occurred and if we can tweak that and alter it that then gets us out of our mental angst and then the other one which changed my life was by our you and I mutual friend Steve Ozanic I mean the great pain deception I, I've had uh, two hip surgeries uh, one of them was a replacement I had a lot of pain in my life um, and his theories and they're not even theories there's a lot of you know ev- evidence-based um, dr. John Sarno's work really changed my world so the great pain deception by Steve Ozanic yes I had uh, Steve was a guest on my podcast a wonderful wonderful man and and mm-hmm. and a great book yes thank yeah. you for those now do you have a favorite quote I do. It's like my overarching life quote. It was originally by Jesus, but many people have, you know, tweaked it. It's just the golden rule. It's treat others as you would like to be treated. And that's paraphrased. Um, And other, you know, loosely, there's the silver rule. Don't treat others in a way that you would not like to be treated. So that whole premise was the basis of my, my first adult nonfiction book, Safe Souls, and it's just a beautiful way of living. It's like, let's not be judging. Let's not be gossiping. Let's not be triangulating. Let's let's be love and, and light to the people around us. And so I think that is encapsulated by, by the golden rule. Wonderful. Now, you mentioned, yes, you've written four books. Could you talk about them? And I know that you have written a children's book. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. No, I've got a couple of kids' books out. Um, they're based on, one of them is, it's called Bumble Saves My Pokey, and it's it's really a sort of a philanthropic sort of adventure about a uh, elephant that gets stuck in a watering hole. And it, the whole purpose of it is to is to fund to help fund the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust in Kenya. And then the other one's called Bumble's Finds Your Way Home, and that's to support um, a village that my husband and I support in uh, in Zambia. So all funds go to all proceeds go to to those and they're just they're really fun illustration kids books that that really kids do seem to love not to toot my own horn but um yeah they're they're really cute books and then safe souls um the tag that you know the subtitle is transforming relationships and businesses through the power of kind clean and clear communication and that all started from a um from a little 10 minute talk on necker island actually and you know a lot of thought leaders were there and really loved it. And I wound up doing some, some uh, workshops in businesses and around this safe souls premise. And, um, and then that led to them saying, oh, people would say it was a really powerful workshop. We'd like to be able to bring this home to our friends and family. So that's where the book came out. And that was, that was my first, my first adult nonfiction. Um, And uh, yeah, stemming from those workshops. Fabulous. Uh, can you hear my cat in the background? I can. Yeah, yeah she. You. you see, she is very excited by what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> uh, her mission is to help all the cats in the neighborhood who have bad habits. Oh, that's you see. 
if you could if if you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing in the world, what would it be? Well, it kind of ties right in with that. My my biggest pain is cruelty toward animals. Like uh, I just it kills me. And ever since I was a little kid, I'd be the one, you know, this bird that's wounded, I bring it home in a box and, you know, help the ant. I just, it pains me at the, you know, the amount of animal cruelty. I'm not sure. I was like, man, am I a bad person? I cry more over animals than adults. But I think humans and, and we, we, we can take care of ourselves, whereas, you know, animals can't always. So there would be no cruelty toward animals. I love it. And it's a, a very, very worthy a uh, thing to change it really is how can people how can people contact you and they should especially if they are struggling alone with a big problem uh in some form of addiction mm, yeah my website is just simply rather than rehab.com and um you can also find my books on my Amazon author page if you just do a search on Amazon for Lori Losh L O R I L O S C H and then I'm one on social media I'm kind of one of the very few Lori Loshes so I'm pretty easy to find and once again people that's rather than rehab.com any yeah. any final thoughts Lori for our storytellers today Mm. Well, I think a story that we tell ourselves when we're caught up in an addiction is that we're like a bad person and we're ashamed and we're just unworthy and there's a lot of just negative. And I would say to really try to tweak that to, in fact, like I've never met an addict that I didn't completely relate to that was such a genius, such a creative person, such a compassionate empathetic feeling sentient being I just like it's almost it's just it's almost across the board and I think that's why we get into our addictions because it's just those are things that are a lot to handle and so I would just say remember that you are not a bad person you're literally a genius level survivor and thriver and um, and that no matter how many years people have gone down the path of addiction, there's always hope. Like I was a case, I just thought I was never going to recover. It's just, that's it. Like I'm like the worst case scenario. And, and if I can do it, anybody can do it. Don't lose hope, reach out for help. That is one powerful final thought. And by the way, when you said that, uh, you called all addicts, their um, you use the word genius, that they're genius level thrivers and survivors. I want to recommend the book to you. I don't know if you know it. It's a work. It's a novel, but it really is a true story of a man's life. The guy who wrote it. Okay. It's called Shanta Ram. It's one word, Shanta Ram. Okay. And it's an Indian word. And uh, the guy is one of the most brilliant writers I've ever read. It's over 900 pages, and I guarantee you when you read the first page, you will be addicted, and you will not, <laughs> not be able to put it down. He was addicted to heroin. He was a thief. He was in a maximum security prison. He broke out in broad daylight wow. in Australia made his way to India, and that's where the adventure begins. 
Wow, that sounds amazing. I've written that down. I will definitely get that. And uh, Johnny Depp apparently wants to make it into a movie. Nice. Well, maybe that'll be my 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 pilgrimage um, walk reading this this September. Oh, and I would love to get your feedback on it, Lori. You are um, a bright light in the world. Oh well, thank you. You really are, and you, the listeners today, uh, you bless them with that light, and I want to thank you so much for that. Well, thank you so much for all you're doing and for having me and what a what a gift and what fun. You're just a fun guy and uh, it was really enjoyable. I received that. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Laurie Lush. And I think you will agree that this was time very well spent. She is an authentic inspirational human being. Pay this forward. Let people know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. And make sure to go to that site today and download the gift that I have created for you, the ebook Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Once again, I'm going to emphasize the importance of reading books. We spoke about quite a few of them today. One of them, a great work of fiction based on truth. And the others, books that will empower, inspire you, and help you to take your life to a whole other level. Our sponsor, as you know, is Audible, and they are offering you, the listeners to this show, our storytellers, a downloadable audiobook of your choice. You get to choose from more than 180,000 titles and one month free service, all that Audible has to offer. Go today to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose and download your free audiobook now. Lori's story is about addiction, a specific kind of addiction to food, but actually, if you pay close attention to everything that she offers, her insights, you know that all addictions have something in common. And regardless of what a person chooses as their form of addiction, they're coming from a place of damaged self-esteem, feeling unworthy, feeling like they don't belong, that is the essence of her message. And beyond that, because I actually call this podcast Beyond Addiction, underneath those feelings of worthlessness, those feelings of darkness, of discouragement, despair, there is 
a shining light that is in absolutely everyone who is listening to this call. In fact, it's in everyone who isn't listening to this call. And if you're struggling at all with a damaged self-image, if you have an addiction either to a substance or to a behavior that is hurting your life, and you don't think that there's any way out, stop, pause, breathe, listen once again to Laurie's incredible story, and know that you can transform from a caterpillar to a butterfly, that you can reinvent your life, find meaning, happiness, and success no matter where you are today. Begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.